This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Today on Off Tackle Empire, another coaching head rolls, but it's not in the Big Ten Westeros. This time, once nodded at politely Rutgers, offensive coordinator Sean Gleason, which just goes to show, Nebraska is one of those programs that you just can't suck against if you want to keep your job. Sure, you have problems against the Ohio States of the world, but you struggle against a Nebraska. You're not long for this world today on Off Tackle Empire. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire! Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, a podcast that despite our true Big Ten roots, not even we will, outside of me, claim to have really unironically enjoyed every second of Iowa, Illinois. Oh, I enjoyed it. I So I had plans a good part of the day Saturday, but I was able to get back home and situated in time for the nightcap. And well, we're, we're, we're jumping out of order a little bit here, and we'll actually have an Iowa contributor joining us to talk about the game, so maybe we'll put a pin in that and circle back to it. But no, I, I if only because of this years-long journey we've taken staring into the eclipse that is Big Ten West football so regularly. Perhaps I've just become inoculated to it, but I did enjoy it. Um, not for the reasons that most typical football fans would. I, I don't think it's exactly a full embrace of the Sickos Committee lifestyle, although we're pretty closely aligned with that whole milieu. Uh, yes, certainly at the very least what appeared to be the original intent of it. And, you know, again, we'll save a lot about that, that, that game later. But that was one of those things where in the second quarter, I'm thinking a touchdown ends this thing. Either By the end of the third yes, quarter, yes, I said, absolutely. a field goal ends this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of a touchdown ending things, it, it, it was the second of three consecutive weekends with a night game for Nebraska under the lights Huskers. This is apparently a thing now. Got to display your biggest, highest quality program, although we do have to add the caveat here that at least this week they're like, you know, the crowd that they're going to draw at Rutgers is going to be more like a high school game anyway. Why don't we just bump this one to Friday night and give it a spot all by itself? So that was the choice. Nebraska prevailing on the road in She Stadium by a one-point margin, 14-13. to 13. She, Shy, SHI, I don't really give a shit. Uh, I got to mention that uh, Mickey Joseph is not even the only interim head coach who is 2-0 in conference games. <laughs> yeah. Whoever's coaching Georgia Tech... <laughs> It's on a two-game winning streak. The zombie coaches are doing some work this year, which we'll get to next episode when we talk about what what else happened. But <laughs> all in all, this has been kind of obviously I've got some bias because my team's doing well. But there's been a lot of really spooky shit happening this season, which has made it objectively really weird and kind of funny, unprecedented ways. Kind of so. The natural comparison for deep fans of college football is going to be, man, are we going to ever approach levels of crazy of 2007? And the answer is no, both because, one, that season will never be repeated, and two... Kansas already has a loss. The teams at the top of the college football order are invincible to the turmoil around them. Because when you look at the teams that finished the end of... You know who played for the national championship? Ohio State and LSU. Sure, but again... all the crazy things that happened. Yeah, but not because either of them actually deserve to be there. Uh, this year, it's going to remain the same handful of elite teams that it's been for most of the existence of the playoff. But Which before is why we, get, we keep telling you, disregard those teams. They're playing a different sport than the one we love so so dearly. Yeah, and so all that you really need to know about this game is I bet it would be very difficult to find another game with a box score in which two quarterbacks for the same team go 6-for-15 without an injury. Yeah, in a game. As 
Well, I guess, in a sense, there was an injury involved here because neither of those quarterbacks was Gavin Wimsat. The only the pride. The only part. The, the only part of the Rutgers. Well, lower body is what they said. Maybe it was pride. Maybe your pride's in your balls. I don't know. Um, the only part of this rotation thing that Rutgers has been doing that makes any sense is getting Wimsat some game experience. But then it's like, all right, you've had a couple series now. Come here and we'll talk to you and coach you up. And yeah, it's not going well, but we got shit around you, so that's kind of be going to be how it goes. And then you have Evan Simon go out there and schlop around for a couple of series. And he doesn't do anything. Um, and then you send Wimsat back in after you've coached him. And like I'm th- like in pay- in theory, you could see how that would work. But now Wimsat's hurt. He's not playing in this game. And they keep doing it, rotating every few series. Every kind of like, there, there wasn't a pattern that I noticed. Between Evan Simon and Noah Vedral, a super senior using his COVID year, I believe, who they know what he is. And he's not going to be on this team in the future. So what benefit there was in switching their quarterbacks in and out, not letting either of them get into rhythm. Like, if your goal is to win the game, Vedra would have been the guy because Simon threw three interceptions. And only one of them was not a terrible throw. And I was various with busy. I was busy with various. I was various. I was busy with various being back in Champagne things that Friday night. But I did have some time to check our, our writer's room. To see many different non-aligned people saying, "I don't understand what Rutgers is doing on offense," unless the unless the point is to try and make sure that no continuity ever gets established, no rhythm ever happens. Yeah, and the, what's the, going on? And the message Why is of, this quarterback in now. That they ended up then firing their offensive coordinator suggests that maybe Greg Schiano took his hand off the wheel on offense a little more than he should have, and ended up realizing, like, <laughs> wait, what are we doing I mean, here? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> like, it looks like Greg Schiano had the same question that we all did, yeah. and he did not get a satisfactory answer. Yeah. And again, remember, like the, the especially the first year, and even to an extent last year, it was like, hey, you know, this like patching things together and lots of gadget running plays, and oh, Johnny Langan's in as a, sort of a wildcat quarterback, but he'll throw a few passes. Like the fact that they kind of stitched together an offense that could occasionally move the ball with the pieces they had was impressive at first. But it's like, all right, this is year three. Uh, it's not that the talent level has risen up all that much, but. Shouldn't you have a quarterback who can yeah, play an entire quarter by now? <laughs> yeah, let's make a like a coherent game plan at least. Like that's that's the whole thing. Like it did seem like at any given circumstance the quarterback could change. That is just not sign of an organi- a sign of an organized game plan. And at least the last couple years they could always be like, well, we can give it to Isaiah Pacheco and hope that he does something because he's very talented. He's you know in a tandem with the Chiefs now as a seventh round pick. So that they don't have him to fall back on anymore. The guys they've turned to for the running game this year have been very ineffective. Because ultimately, yeah, Sean Gleason lost them this game. They were up 13 to nothing. All they had to do was make it a three-possession game, and there's no no way this would have ever happened. No signs of life from Nebraska on offense. Only touchdown that they scored was on the first play off of a terrible interception. Um, Should not have been thrown. And then... They do the thing you do after interception, which is call the deep shot, and they hit Trey Palmer. Why I don't do that more, I will never know as a possessor is, of Trey Palmer in the OTE league. Is but, that really a thing that teams generally do after getting a turnover? It's, what, it's, what the, it's what the broadcasters always say you should do. Anyway, Nebraska wins the game. Rutgers loses and fires their offensive coordinator. It, it was certainly a game that was played. I didn't see the... Uh, I have no idea what the yards looked like at halftime, but I imagine Rutgers got the vast majority of their 346 total yards, which, uh, whatever, I'm, I'd, gather, I, I'd, I'd venture a guess that they got most of those in the first half. Well, they scored a touchdown on the opening drive of the game, so certainly would have gotten 75-ish there. I don't know what their kickoff went for. And then ended up with all 13 at half there would have been a couple decent drives in there theoretically so yeah i would guess the large majority of them were before halftime and then after that yeah not so much so moving on to the saturday games michigan 31 indian 10 yes this is what the uh, fox sports broadcast graphics uh how they named indiana it was just indian it's getting closer it's not indinia so this game was a little more competitive than it might look at Finally, you know, if you just glance at the score, tied at 10 at the half. 
Ultimately, though, Indiana could not move the ball consistently on the ground. I will give them some credit. Well, <laughs> I would love to give them some credit. But again, given that I now have a fantasy interest in Sean Shivers, I am furious that they have opted to go with a committee approach at running back, given none of them are especially effective. Why don't you just give the ball to the one guy who actually gets into the end zone occasionally? That makes sense to me, but what do I know? Um, anyway, very little effectiveness in the Indiana running game, which has been a theme all year. And in the second half, Michigan, well, especially in the second half, found a little more consistency with their passing game. Ronnie Bell and Luke Schoonmaker consistently able to get open to move the chains and get chunk plays. And Blake Corum doing what he did, you know, not outlandish yardage, but still better than five yards a carry on reasonable volume. And so at the half, I was, of course, you know, very amused to see the score. And I looked into it further, and it turns out that Indiana was just kind of doing that thing that they did to start the season 3-1, and one, which is like, you know, the same thing that they did to beat Penn State the one time with about a quarter of their yards, <laughs> which is to say, like, they were at one point, I think, averaging about less than four yards per play. But they were there 10 10. Here's, here's some of the drives field goal, field goal, punt, interception, missed field goal, missed field goal, downs, end of half. That's mm-hmm. what happened in the second quarter. Yep, you just kind of fart around and you know, take a long time to do it. That's one of those games where there's just no way that you can continue to do that for that long if you're Indiana. It's yeah, just no way. Eventually, the dam's going to break. An approach that placed a lot of stress on their defense, and not also something that you generally do intentionally. Yeah, right. It just kind of happens. Uh, there was a scary moment in this game when Michigan assistant Mike Hart went down on the sideline with an apparent seizure. The most recent report there was that he is in stable condition, presumably not going to be on the sideline. Um, as an assistant coach, it's not as though he's hugely involved in the game day anyway. But obviously, but he's part of the program. I'm sure they'll miss having him around. Yeah, on the sidelines. certainly. And you always need guys to, you know, slap your ass after you come off the field making a big play. I have no idea if that's what he does, but you know, there's a lot of people whose role on game day as assistant coaches is largely that. Yeah, and it's certainly the kind of thing where you have a bond with your players, and it plainly a lot of emotional reactions during the game, but something that Michigan was able to put behind them and pull away for a relatively easy win. So so here's a takeaway I have from that. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but this is a thing I've been tracking for a few games now that is probably only of interest to me. Connor Bazalek through, through six games has 295 passing attempts. This leads FBS, which is insane because I don't think Indiana... Offense was designed in the offseason as an air raid team. No. <laughs> However. No, bringing in a couple of transfer running backs along with all the other skill guys, they probably intended to be more balanced. But as we discussed with Buff Komodo in our season preview, as we mentioned a few times since then, the thing they didn't improve was the offensive line. And so it's much easier to throw the ball on you know, a quick strike kind of thing without any real pass protection because the pass rush can only get home so quickly unless they're timing the snap, whereas to run the ball, you do have to move somebody out of the way most of the time. So, like, I want to put that number of attempts in context. He's on pace to finish the season with 590. Only two players had more than that last year. They were Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky and Will Rogers from Mississippi State, (laughs) both absolute 100%. These are teams... Who have never pretended that they care about running the ball. No, the two air radiest of air raid teams in all of the country. <laughs> but in the context of the Big Ten, again, I assume Indiana is going to be playing from behind a bit. I assume they're not going to suddenly figure out how to run the ball because that's just one of those problems that once you, it, because it starts at the offensive line, once you have it, it usually doesn't, you know, just lock into place at some point during the year, and now it's dramatically better. No, this line kind of is what it is. It's not an especially young offensive line. You'll see certain kinds of improvements sometimes from offensive lines that just don't completely click for whatever reason, but like this seems like it's beyond that. Yeah, you know, maybe you can put in a wrinkle occasionally that an opponent isn't prepared for, or they'll have a key injury in their defensive front that you can exploit. But Indiana still has games left against Ohio State, Penn State, Purdue, and Maryland. No, I'm not going to mention Michigan State in the list of games left, as though that's one need to be concerned about. They'll win that easily. Um, 
there are some offenses left that are going to score some points against the defense that is not quite what it was last year. They're still the better unit on this team by a considerable measure, but still, um, yeah, the chances that Lego or that Lego mentioned, because you were talking about the Indiana quarterbacks who might've come close to that and no, it wasn't even in the same atmosphere. The idea that Basilek ends up leading the country in pass attempts, despite playing for Indiana for Tom Allen, Indiana is a very real possibility, which, you know. It would set the Big Ten record if he finished on pace. Um, the current Big Ten record is held by, can you at least guess the school? I'd say Northwestern. <laughs> you know what? Uh, C.J. Bacher was number six, but no, Purdue's got four of the top five yeah, well. uh, with, the same two, with the same two quarterbacks. Curtis Painter owns the five and the one spots. Actually, no, it's a tie in the one spot between Curtis Painter's 2007 and Drew Brees' 1998. With 569 yeah. passing attempts, Basilak is on pace to beat this by another, well, you know, like 21, which I think those count bowl games. So if Indiana doesn't get to a bowl game they, and he does that in one fewer game. <laughs> that's like a Barry Sanders. That's some Barry Sanders shit. Um, so... Other games in the news in the noon slot on Saturday: Purdue thirty-one, Maryland twenty-nine. One of the games that you know usually when we try to pin down how we think a game is going to flow, we don't really get it right. We were pretty spot especially on with if this we one. think a game is going to be competitive and good and fun to watch. Yeah, but uh, hey, look, broken clock twice a day, et cetera, et cetera. Two teams that moved the ball pretty fluidly through the air. Two teams who couldn't really do much of anything on the ground. The entire difference in the game was an awful blown call. Purdue jumped way off sides on an extra point attempt, successfully blocked it, would not have done so if they were on side. Uh, that ends up being the margin of the game. Maryland is later obligated to go for two just to tie it. They don't get it, and it's a two-point loss. So what, and not something that I saw a whole lot of commentary about. Like There were a few, cli- few clips of the video from various Big Ten sources like, oh, wow, looks like they might have missed something here. And then everyone moved on. It's not, you know, I'm just thinking about this happening to a team other than Maryland in this count. Like, imagine if this happens and Michigan escapes over Indiana because of it, or Michigan loses to Indiana. Because yeah, I was going to say that way would be a lot, a lot more outrageous. It would be a firestorm. You'd, you'd have the indignant takes from Rich Eisen and Charles Woodson, about Desmond just, Howard. You know, the way we officiate football needs to fundamentally change. Is stuff that you'd hear a lot. Yeah, of. now it's a problem. Now it's a tragedy. Now it's so sad to see <laughs> that kind of thing. But I mean, there were several. You know, there were a lot of clutch throws being made here. There was one sequence that I remember seeing Corey Deitches just absolutely dragged a defender twenty-five yards into yeah. the end zone. Yeah, but it like if you want to say, oh well, they're not going to compete for the division. Yeah, they may not. But for a team like Maryland, this. Given their trajectory and the way some of their eligibility lines up, they'll have a number of guys making NFL decisions. Like this should have, this could well be what is like a summit year. They may have a little bit of a of a retool. I don't want to say full rebuild, but they're likely to be a bit of a step backwards next year. Dropping a game like this—that's a very winnable game—is the difference between something like a Citrus Bowl or, in a best case scenario, maybe an outside shot at a New Year's Six Bowl. To now being like, all right, well, maybe give you... They changed the name of the Outback. I don't know what it's called now, but it's going to be the Outback in our hearts forever. Blooming Onion for life. Um, they held Purdue to... Well, Sack adjusted under 40 yards rushing. Um, yeah. Which, not that Purdue is a is an especially stout or dedicated rushing team, but the point is they forced Purdue to be one-dimensional. Right. Which was not something that Minnesota was able to do. Yeah, and Maryland had a little more success on the ground, but honestly, they've got a better group of running backs than Purdue does. You would kind of expect that. Um, yeah, so and from the Purdue perspective, this is the kind of game you have to win if you are going to make the noise in the division that you intend to. Again, having dropped that Penn State game that was so winnable right out of the gate in the season, that kind of was your mistake game. So that you're able to hold on, win a game like this against a peer opponent, and frankly, a team that would also be near the top of the West if they were playing in it ought to give you some confidence. I mean, you've, you've already gotten the Minnesota bugaboo off your back, a team you've not been able to beat. You still have games left against like Iowa, Northwestern. Um, 
got to be feeling pretty good if you're Purdue. And of course, <laughs> as soon as I lose all my faith in them whatsoever and declare as such on this podcast, that is when Purdue decides it's time we get our shit together and actually make a run at the division. <laughs> it just cannot be the case that Aodu pays as much attention to college football is as wrong about it as consistently as I am. Cannot be the case. Bring me the man who claims to outdo me in this arena. Nebraska's still alive for the division. They're first place right now, buddy. <laughs> I can't. I you can't, refuse. You can't give up. You can't give up on that one yet. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, I've made it to mid-October, and yes, technically, I can still be right about that. If they're out. If they're out for. If they're out of contention, then so are we. And so is Illinois. They've already lost to Northwestern, though. They've already got. But we lost to Indiana. But in know, a, it's not a Nebraska's got all the punchy run ground games again left, and they're not going to win any of those, I don't think. So it, anyway, anyway. Well, the good news about Nebraska beating people is that the teams that they've beaten have managed to avoid the Nebraska curse, the beating <laughs> Nebraska curse, because boy, teams that have beaten Nebraska have had a rough go of it. Every team that beat Nebraska this year, out of all of them, only Georgia Southern has won, and it's only been once. Um, teams that beat Nebraska were beaten by 49 points and 35 points this past weekend. Yes, having been in close proximity to them, you evidently captured their wasting plague as your own. We did mention Northwestern there. Wisconsin 49 or 42, I'm sorry, Northwestern 7. Oh, cool. Wisconsin remembered how to be Wisconsin right before they play my team. You love to see it. Not so fast, my friend. Graham Mertz had his second game with five touchdown passes, and we'll see if this continues the trend of no defensive coordinator or head coach makes it through a season in which they allow five touchdown passes to Graham Mertz in one game. Yeah, uh, Northwestern feels nearly assured to lose out, barring a substantial upset the rest of the way. Given that Wisconsin showed Paul Chris the door after, you know, a disappointing but not calamitous start to the season. You know, maybe that's not fair. Maybe it was calamitous relative to their it expectations. It felt like the division was out of reach for them at the beginning of October. Yeah. That's very different. Yeah, that's a very I, different place okay. than they found themselves. So anyway, in the micro sense, perhaps justified, but still, for a guy with that kind of tenure, basically, I wonder if it has changed the thinking as to who is really untouchable in this sport. But if there's anyone who is truly untouchable, it would be Pat Fitzgerald, even if they go 1-11 with their win being over a Nebraska team that then fired their coach a couple weeks later. Boy, Northwestern plays at Iowa. And speaking of untouchable people, I wonder how Brian Ferentz's offense will do against this Northwestern team. We We have truly been deprived by the scheduling modifications of the last couple of years, taking both of those teams out of circulation against Michigan State because the absolutely unwatchable caliber of football we would get if any of if Michigan State played either of those two teams, it's at least we've contained Iowa to merely playing Northwestern and also the rest of the Big Ten West. But it would also there, there would be like metaphysical consequences, I think, if the Iowa offense and Michigan State defense ever met on a football field this year. Because it's like whatever the inverse is of the unstoppable force in the immovable object, like the just calling something a movable object doesn't mean that everything at all times moves it, which is the word that I'm looking for here, but I don't quite have it. Well, what you do have with Northwestern is a team that does absolutely nothing particularly well. They're ranked very poorly in offense and defense, and they're ranked abysmally in special teams. Yeah. So I don't know where you start. There's certainly no way that Pat Fitzgerald gets the plug pulled on him. But again, the exact same thing we said last week, which is we're going to limit your screen time until you figure out how to, you know, make some better staffing hires. We're going to go to your room, young young man, and think about what you did. Well, so, I mean, this is, what, year 17 for Fitz? How long, when did he start there? 2006. All right, so year 16. 17? 16. He started there the same time that Brett Bielema started at Wisconsin. A long-ass time. Do we really think that in this, after this amount of time, 
that Fitzgerald is just going to say, yeah, you know what? I definitely do need to change everything. I'm firing my entire staff, hiring a bunch of guys who I don't have ties to. And we're starting over. I'm getting I'm getting back to basics. I'm going to build this thing back up from the from the bottom. Does that really seem in the character of Pat Fitzgerald to you? I don't know that much about their athletic director, but he'd have to be a real, like, you know, big swinging dick to, to you know, I assume Pat Fitzgerald's angle will be is, well, who the fuck are you? I've been here for 16 yeah. years. Oh, yeah, you were yeah, doing yeah. what exactly? Again, and this is, you know. Get out of my office. Right. I know I go back to the D'Antonio era a lot for comparisons, but still, I, I remember those last couple of years as the offense just decayed to nothing. And I would hear people in my fan base being like, uh, you know, look, I just think the athletic director's got to go in there and have a talk with him, tell him he's got to change a few things. It's like, how do you think that conversation is going to go? <laughs> is he is he even going to open the door? Like, he's going to kick his feet up, lean back in a very fancy recliner that I assume he had. And and then he's, I don't imagine you'd have to say anything if you're the coach in that situation. And here's another thing. Uh, Brendan Sullivan, to what I understand, looked serviceable as a quarterback okay. in some backup time. Well, the, you know, not that it matters for their season, but, like, why didn't he play until now? Like Because there's no because there's no pressure. Because they determined in the offseason, this is the guy we want to go with. We're going with our established upperclassmen who we know what we're getting. And... There's no need to do something rash like playing a young kid who might have a higher ceiling. He might make a mistake, damn it, and put our defense in a difficult position. I mean, the defense that gives up, you know, 300 something yards a game, 400, like, what are we talking about here, basically? Like, there's something has gone substantially wrong here. This does not feel like, oh, you know, they, they just don't have a quarterback when they figure that out. The rest of the foundation is in place. Like, this offense has Peter Skaronsky and nobody else who's going to sniff the NFL. It feels like Donnie Navarro has big Bennett Skoranek energy to me. Like, how in the hell is this guy going to find, him, find himself on a roster? Maybe. I don't know. He's the only part of their offense that works besides Skaronsky. I mean, I guess. And then defensively, there's nobody. There's nobody on this team. Maybe Cam Mitchell in another year or two who ends up being an all-conference consideration. Like, they don't they don't have any talent. And there's no reason to think they're going to get any better, and the coaches they have are not making use of what they do have. So... They were recruiting respectably per recruiting websites um, above what they had been for most of Pat Fitzgerald's tenure. Yeah, and that's, that years. suggests that... Which suggests that this coaching staff is not value-added. Like... No. His, like, his ones of... Like, like the one that he had together for the longest time there. Yeah, well, especially Hankwitz. I mean, Mick McCall was definitely more up and down in the last couple of years. Definitely justified letting him go. But, right, it's... Sometimes I wonder if a coach becomes too much of a victim of their own success in that way because he had Hankwitz with him that worked for such a long time. And doesn't it then cement in your idea, man, all my friends are really good football coaches. I just need to get a couple more of my friends in here and everything's going to be great. And... So that, that's how North Washington well, gets where. I mean, why would you go away from what's worked for you? Co coaches especially, college football coaches are very much, very much creatures of habit. And in a lot of cases, um, if they've had success doing something, yeah. that's yeah. what they're going to do because it won me a game before. Right, and creatures of ego, which is understandable because it's a highly competitive industry in a highly alpha male dominated arena. So if you're able to get to the top of your profession in that atmosphere, yeah, you're going to think you got the biggest dick in the room and you're not going to listen to anyone who says otherwise. So anyway, we got to move on. There's not a whole lot else to talk about there. The game was over very quickly. Um, again, just love to see teams firing their coaches and getting it together under an interim. The week before they come and play my team, you couldn't have waited to fire Chris until after this game. Well, I guess then, we would have gotten this performance. I don't know. Hopefully, it's a dead cat bounce in Wisconsin. Turns out to be more of what they were the first month of the season. Speaking of my team, Ohio State 49, Michigan State 20. The margins in this game are closer than they appear to kind of modify the side mirror warning. Um, if you watched any of this game, you would know it was not competitive from the beginning. 
The only reason the score was even this close is that uh, sometime in the second quarter, I believe, or maybe it was even first, um, C.J. Stroud had a miscommunication with his receiver through kind of a shorter route. The receiver's running long. A cornerback happens to notice, grabs it, runs it back for a pick six. And then Michigan State scratched out another touchdown in the first half. Other than that, though, this game was functionally over when Michigan State threw an interception into triple coverage on the first drive of the game. Drive that was otherwise moving reasonably well, but it was very much emblematic of what Peyton Thorne's been dealing with all season, which is he plainly feels the pressure to carry the team by himself, but he's really not quite good enough to do that. Uh, Not many quarterbacks would be. That's not meant as a knock against him, but he has not yet appeared to learn that there there are enough pieces around him that they could make this offense work, but this team is not good enough to overcome mistakes because every time they give the ball back to the opponent, that opponent's going to score. And lest I be accused of hyperbole here, Ohio State did not punt until about a minute into the fourth quarter. By that time, they had pulled C.J. Stroud, pulled a lot of their other receivers. I think they had a few starters on the line in there, perhaps. But still, they had cruised at that point to enough of a margin that they had all their a lot of backups in with a whole quarter left to play. And that's, the, I mean, this margin and the fact that Ohio State converted all their possessions other than that pick six into touchdowns conceals the fact that Bryce Berenger is having the best season of any punter in the country. Yeah, I said it. Look at any metric you want for punting and then come and try to debate me. Debate me, you cowards. He's the best punter in the country and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't have much. I'm taking this. So I've talked a lot about Michigan State's shortcomings and there's really no new data from this game. I mean, Um, the offense got 202 yards and seven around the ground. It's perhaps the biggest outlier in a set of very bleak data points, but... They gave up running pretty quick. Certainly is another one, yeah. They gave up, but it's just as well because it wasn't working. It wasn't going to work. And despite the fact that Eli Collins appears to be the only back on the roster capable of breaking a tackle, they still won't give him the ball. So as much as I'd like to talk about the offense and its shortcomings, as much as I'd like to regale you with a tale of how the defense was going to be bad and they're worse because they've got like five or six or seven injuries now, um, again, hope Jaron Magum supposedly is released from the hospital, walking around okay. He was back at the stadium after a very scary hit because Travion Henderson turned his helmet into a battering ram because we don't call offensive targeting. Um, all that stuff is old news that this defense is probably not fixable this year. Tucker, after the game, continued to be defiant about making staff changes during the season. I don't know if that's a great look when Rutgers is firing their offensive coordinator. But hey, it depends on what you think you can gain from firing them now. Because for me, I guess this coach—I guess this coaching thing—it seems to me to be, at least in Chris's case, to largely be: look, we want to get a free shot at a coaching evaluation with no risk, right? Yeah. So that's the deal. But this, is it the same thing for offensive coordinators? I don't know enough about Rutgers staff to, off the top of my head. To know if there's a guy in there that Greg Schiano wants to see what he can do. I have to do you, assume... Do you think that's the case with... I, I don't know that it would be. I have to assume that this scheme that they're running... Because again, like I said, it's a complicated scheme or a pattern matching scheme that is trying to do what the best defenses in the sport are doing. A lot of zone, but a lot of handoff responsibilities as well in the coverage. And it's just not working. Even when all the players were healthy, it didn't seem to be working that now that they're playing like division two transfers who were supposed to be corners at safety, because that's how many injuries they've had. Like it's definitely not going to work now, but I think it's also basically the scheme that Tucker wants to run. I don't know if kicking a guy out who's running the scheme he wants to run gets done what he wants done. But the other thing he's got to confront here is if I don't figure this defense out, they are going to pay me to go away, but I'll never coach again. I mean, for his buyout, I suppose you would live with that. But I can't imagine that he's going to actually show... Like, if they don't substantially improve, and they very well might not, he's going to have to fire somebody. Because if he doesn't fire anybody, all the blame remains filtered on him. Buying, firing a coordinator, or maybe even firing Harlan Barnett, one of the defensive back coaches, might get you some time. But everybody basically knows this is the system Tucker wants. 
he picked these guys to a very large extent. It's if it's not hugely better next year, he's got real problems. Um, so anyway, all that stuff is old news. Well, I um, really think that for Michigan State, it, it it's kind of like you're not going to achieve what you know you were setting out to this year. But what you can try to do is regroup. There are three games that look pretty winnable. I really think Wisconsin's result against Northwestern was a result of Northwestern being like really unbelievably bad. It um, could be. I, I I would still consider Wisconsin to be a game that's in play. And then Indiana and Rutgers would be the others. I don't think we have much prospect of beating Illinois because your offense is at least as good as Minnesota's. Well, and the pass rush has gotten five sacks in every one of their last four games. And yeah, that seems pretty disruptive. Uh, but still, I, I would never say never in the Michigan game after what I saw two years ago. But I'm certainly not going to be predicting them to win many of these. Like, again... Indiana and Rutgers are the only ones where if we don't win those games, I will still be furious. Like, given what I've seen, I don't really expect much the rest of the season. Those are the last two where it's like, right, given what we've seen from those teams, you better not lose those games. Well, right now, I'm sure that there are some Michigan State fans that are saying, okay, look, that have reached the bargaining phase this way. Okay, look, I, I don't care about going to a bowl game this year anymore, but you know, I always say it. We win only one game in the Big Ten this year, and it's Michigan. That's a good season in my book. You know them, right? You know they're out there. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, We very nearly got to test that hypothesis two years ago. Then we went out and somehow beat Northwestern also in the last good Northwestern team of all time, apparently. Um, I almost wish that it would have been the only one, just because I I would have liked to see it. And I think that those people would have been telling the truth. I, I think there were plenty of people who were satisfied enough with the 2020 outcome under in, in that context so because that was such an abnormal season maybe it's not a valid test point but anyway we got to wrap up here and move on to bring in our iowa contributor but before we do i do want to leave everyone out there with a stat in case there's anyone left who hasn't seen michigan state thinks maybe i'm exaggerating about how bad this defense is okay i've got a little stat of woe for you so they played six games this year the first two were against a couple of pretty bad Mac opponents. Since then, they have gone 0-4. And here is the time in each of those games when Michigan State's opponent has first had to punt the ball. Against Washington, the Huskies were forced to punt with 41 seconds left in the third quarter. At that point, the score was 36-14. Minnesota never punted. Not once. They didn't score on every drive. Minnesota did lose a fumble and I think also missed a field goal. But they never punted. Never had to. Maryland had to punt with 19 seconds left in the first quarter. That's good news. Surely that means the defense stood up. Actually, Maryland had already scored two touchdowns by that point. And for some reason, chose to start running the ball. The one thing that Michigan State's defense can still kind of stop most of the time. And then against Ohio State, 14 minutes and 4 seconds left in the fourth quarter when the Buckeyes have to punt for the first time. Score at that point, Ohio State 49, Michigan State 13, C.J. Stroud, many other starters already sitting on the bench at that point. This defense does not work, not in the slightest, and that they're totally unwilling to change anything about it. To run something that these guys even understand is a real problem. It is a sign of, again, I don't want to go back to this well, but that late D'Antonio symptom of, no, I really do know more than everyone else, and that all you idiots can't see how close this is to working is your problem, not mine. That's not something that a peach bowl gets you. You got to have a little bit more to, to, to lean in that way, given these results. So it's time now for us to bring in our Iowa contributor to discuss the game of the week in the Big Ten in terms of Big Tenness, which would be Iowa 6. Illinois 9. Yep, as I'm going to polish off my win fight try Brewster of the week, which is, of course, the leftover spice from my tailgate with delicious Curtis Orchard cider from Champagne. Uh, as part of my tradition where I go down there, go to Curtis Orchard when it opens on Sunday morning, and then tell myself I'm not going to house all these donuts on the way back to Detroit. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm always lying. So look, while I'm pretty sure that I had my finger on the pulse of the Iowa fan base this weekend, first off, because I'm from Naperville. But second, yeah, because a lot of them did come to the tailgate and... A lot of them were kind of, it was this interesting bargaining thing that they had because they were kind of like, ah, go Iowa, awesome. But also, also we every just hope we get a guy fired if we lose. Ah, yay. <laughs> As always, none of them brought up the fact that they beat us 63 to nothing a few years ago because, again, this is not a point of pride for Iowa fans over us, which is the most embarrassing thing about that game. <laughs> Did not register at all. But in any case... Uh, nobody's got quite as deep a connection to Iowa on this podcast right now as Creighton, who we're bringing in to discuss. So of course, this being the day that uh, Creighton wrote an article about Kirk Ferentz riding his son all the way to the bottom. So we've brought him on board to discuss the uh, the second game of the season in which Iowa and their opponent have both failed to clear 10 points. Um, Iowa is one and one in such games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, clear 10 points. No, if it's failed to clear 10 points, then aren't they one and two in those games? Didn't they lose 10 to nine to Iowa state? Yes. Um, yeah, we're, we're one and one in games where neither team has scored double digits this year. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. They, I, I wish I had been kind of, at some of those tailgates to catch the vibe. I know uh, around here, they got us down bad. I was uh, at the game last week talking to some Michigan fans and they, it took some convincing to tell them that we're not good this year. I don't, <laughs> people have just been conditioned to um, being able to win these games with bullshit defensive miracles every single week. And, um, and boy, did it look like it was about uh, to happen! Again. I, yeah, I, uh, I didn't let myself become a believer on Saturday. I, the whole time, I was like, "No, nah, we're gonna lose." Everybody, <laughs> everybody, calm down here. This isn't gonna happen again. I'm not hearing. Um, it was, uh, it was the most Brian Ferentz game I think I've ever seen. Um, well, when I I watched a little somebody on YouTube put together a like a, a 30 minute or so highlight thing, which made sure to get all the great student section reactions, including one where a guy said, fuck Iowa, <laughs> real loudly right into the camera. Um, some hero out there, but um, I couldn't help notice, you know, in this, every single time Petrus had a completion, except for one good one he made in traffic, there was nobody within 10 yards of Laporta or Reganey, um, which I know is, a long word to describe the receiver, but that's all it ever was. Um, Petrus was simply unable to hit anything that wasn't an absolutely wide open tight end. Well, and there were two drives where Petrus was starting to get into a rhythm and they were starting to cook a little bit. And both drives just were stopped on completely baffling play calls. Uh, there was one right before yeah. halftime um, where they they were driving down the field and uh, after a big first down, the play call is a reverse to Nico Regani that was completely reliant on uh, Illinois being convinced that Spencer Petrus was a running threat. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And also not being sound on the backside of the defense, which like, I don't know what film you were watching. Yeah. And, and there was, well, there was yeah, another I mean, one yeah, uh, later in the game where same thing, they were starting to cook and, uh, they run a screen to Sam Laporta and it lost eight yards. And I just, I don't know. It's, I would, I'd like to say that it's like they're pulling play calls out of a hat, but that would at least randomly get you a good play call. It's like they're purposefully just choosing the worst thing to do in any particular situation. Yeah. Cause in important moments, 
they had enough data to establish a few things that worked a few times. They never went back to those. In important moments, they always decided, like, let's get really cute, actually. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing that confuses me the most about Iowa's offense this year is this insertion of these gadget plays versus tight end screens, things that rely on the guy getting the ball being really fast and they don't have fast guys. Yeah. And, and like the, the one the screen of Sam Laporte is a great example of that. Sam Laporte is a great player. He's a probably going to be an NFL draft pick. Um, maybe the next great tight end out of Iowa. You're throwing the ball to a tight end behind the line of scrimmage and hoping that he'll have the afterburners to pick up yards for you. Not just behind the scrimmage. Eight yards eight behind. Yeah. yards behind the line of scrimmage. Um, I don't – it's it's like they – the coaches keep going back to this line of like, oh, the offense has improved in practice this week and like it's never materialized on the field. But I'm – I don't know – like they are pulling data out of practices and trying to put it in a game situation. And I'm like, I, your scout team defense, I guess, isn't that fast. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> well, meanwhile, on the other side of the ball, uh, I think it was either on the first or second drive of the game, but it was a fourth and two or three around midfield. Illinois runs speed option mm-hmm. on fourth and short gets the first down isn't that something you would have expected Iowa to do about six years ago? Yeah. Um, Keep those drives going. I, I, I know because I lived it on the other side of this game all the time where it's like every time they line up to go for it on fourth and short, I just knew they were going to find some way to get it by inches. And Illinois had a lot of those plays, which just seemed like kind of the obvious things to do. But it's, it, it's just somehow it was Illinois doing it and not Iowa a complete role reversal from what I've come to expect from Kirk Ferentz. I mean, the, uh, one of the biggest problems this year has definitely been the offensive line play. It, um, it was, it wasn't great last year, apart from Linderbaum. Uh, it was supposed to improve this year. It did not. Um, they definitely took a step backwards and just like, I think offensive line coach, George Barnett should probably be catching more heat than he's catching right now. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they've definitely just not been able to run between the tackles this year as much as they have in previous years. Um they've there's been times where they've had a little bit of success running out of shotgun, um running some stretch plays, but yeah, they just they they cannot get short yards this year. They <laughs> to save their lives. I mean, it's something that yeah, something that I think may have gone uncommented upon for a long time i was had this offensive line reputation and ference has been assumed to be the core reason for that march of 2019 reese morgan retired from iowa he was a long time assistant coach worked with both offensive and defensive line whatever unit he was coaching was elite whenever he was there he retired three years ago. This would not be the first time you've seen a long tenured coach whose best assistants start to trickle away or get old. Basically, at this point, Phil Parker is the only thing holding up Iowa. Well, and LeVar Woods to a what? Or <laughs> LeVar Woods. Um, what is yes, his name? Yes, yes, LeVar Woods. No, because I for a second I get yeah. yeah you thought you said LeVar like, Burton. Do I think he's there, didn't yeah, you? Was I looking? I wanted LeVar Burton to be your special teams coach. Lavar Woods is his name. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so he's got basically two assistants who are demonstrably doing their jobs. If you, yeah, defensive assistants, sure, too. Yeah, defensive backs coach is probably just fine, but Parker gets a lot of the credit for that. So it's a coaching staff around him that may have atrophied a little bit because you can, it's been a multi year decline on that offensive line. Tristan Wirfs and Alaric Jackson leave from the tackle spots, and now Linderbaum has gone at center. Basically, the last standouts that would have been touched by Reese Morgan at some point during their careers, the rest of them are kind of leftovers or younger guys who haven't been coached by him, and they don't seem to have the next guy capable of turning lower-regarded recruits into absolute 
polished diamonds NFL players. That's a position group where they have not maintained their standard. And it's been necessary for them to be good because of how limited their offense has almost always been. They've had occasional brief bursts of average play or even above average play if they hit on a good quarterback or they have a star running back. But overall, this offense's target has always been just good enough. And now they can't do that. Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's kind of been the hardest thing for fans of other teams to wrap their head around when I try to explain, like, no, we're bad this year, is that the offense, yeah, it's always been bad. Um, even the really good years, we were, like, in the 60s, 70s, best offense in the country. Um, yeah, I think you hit hit the nail on the head. Um, offensive line play has definitely been in decline the last, th- at least the last three years. Um, I don't know. I don't think recruiting has anything to do with it. We're, we're getting decent recruits. Um, we've never really, uh, you, you know, we, we kind of may find these guys out of nowhere, right? It's, it's more of a development issue. Um, and yeah, it's affecting, it's affecting every facet of the game. Uh, if we can't run the ball, um, we're not going to be able to set up play action. If we can't do play action, we certainly can't have a passing game. I mean, not running a system that the Browns would have run in like 1997. So, but you know, um, the defense, I mean, didn't completely shut Illinois down, but about a quarter of Illinois yards were on a single drive in the fourth quarter that ended with Art Sikowski throwing an abominable (laughs) pick. The funniest pick. I mean, it got tipped at the line, but all that did was make it harder for I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Schulte. Schulte, Schulte, yeah. Schulte inter- intercepted it. Dejean, all all Dejean the tip would've... did was made it make it a little harder for him to catch it. It was going right there. <laughs> if Schulte had not intercepted it, Dejean almost certainly would have. So it was just what like I watched most of this game from my couch with my wife sitting next to me. She's not terribly interested in football, but she knows what's going on. And she's watching this game. And it's just sick, sick. And like as it goes on, she's just got like this increasingly horrified look at her face. Like, what have I? What are you doing? And I married you, and you're watching this. And it's and, now. And now so- <laughs> my question is this: Did she know that I was there on the other side of the yes. stadium? And did she have any idea how loud a sound I would have made at that interception? Because what she wouldn't have necessarily figured out is because I was watching this from behind the play. The screaming actually started right around the time the ball left his hand. I knew it was going <laughs> to get picked up. From like 100 yards away, I saw that shit. She knew you were there. I just started, uh, no! <laughs> We did not know where you were. But, yeah, man, it like, it's just another example of this defense is going to rescue you. don't have to do much as the Iowa offense to make this work. Um, and that interception, my God, like – that Illinois got out of this game with Sikowski looking like a plant, basically. <laughs> like he was an Hawkeye agent because that interceptor was the worst. Like it, the safety is just like sitting there staring at him. And he's like, no, nah, I can get it in there. And then, <laughs> like, even if he had, Dejean was absolutely underneath the route. There was no way he was completing that. And then the next drive, they get back down. It's third and long. It's like third and nine or something. Yeah. And they go empty and they're like, Art Sitkowski is who we're putting. Art Sitkowski QB power. <laughs> and then bailed out. But yes, he was down. The, the scoop and score that, again, almost like. All right. So that's, that's the last question I'll pose to you before kind of like the closing thoughts here is if that scoop and score had stood and Iowa escapes and is now they would be two and one in the conference, correct? Or do I have that wrong? I think I got yeah. that right. Yeah, they, they lost Iowa State. Yeah, so maybe two and one, tied for the division lead. I, what would the vibe be now? We did we watched this a lot of last year too, where after the first few weeks they got the number two in the country, and then all the air came out of it because they like a, like it became apparent just how bad this offense was you would now be in a similar spot without that high 
without even being assured of going to a bowl game, but like you're still a month and a half into the season, technically in the division lead. <laughs> like, what is? How do you process that? I don't think the vibe itself would have been different. It really feels like we've kind of just been waiting for, uh, for, for us not to like win ten coin tosses in a row to somehow cheat cheat somebody else out of a win. <laughs> um, I mean, the frustration's been building. I I think with Illinois actually like pulling it off somehow um, there's definitely been an outpouring of like, see, we told you this has like been happening. And I think the national media too is like actually starting to take notice besides. Cause our turnovers, each one of them was absolutely backbreaking from the one thrown on second and four. When you have the nation's leading rusher in the backfield uh, to Two of them inside our 35 that Iowa converted that, into that were on that were back to back that Iowa converted into three points. I, they well, I was at I, the five yard line. They took over at our 35 and then punted. I'd like to, I'd like to rewind to that fumble inside the five real quick because I think this is the most Brian Ferentz scoring drive of all time. They got the ball originally like the 20 or 25 yard line. They lost 11 yards, punted the ball. Of course, the punt was muffed, got the ball back. They lost five or six yards, punted again, back-to-back punts. Illinois ran one play, fumbled the ball. We get the ball at the five-yard line. They lost another five yards and kicked a field goal. <laughs> it's uh, they. At that point, I texted, okay, look, <laughs> the way the bounces are going for Illinois – if Iowa loses this game, maybe they should consider Kirk. <laughs> it was it was almost the definition of of punting is winning. I mean, except we didn't win, but it was it was a, a drive for like a negative twenty some yards that that included now, two punts and to revisit and three points. <laughs> to revisit Andrew's question, I, I found I found a, a note that I made on September third during the South Dakota State Iowa game about what. What would the vibe have been like in the South Horseshoe if Iowa pulls that game out with that fumble return? And it was a quote, oh my God, when we lose to this Iowa team, I'm going to break into the Mechie <laughs> lab and headbutt a running bandsaw. Yeah, so well, to kind of put a pin on this, we'll go back to the big picture, right? So in the last couple of days, as Steve mentioned, a lot of national tension criticizing Brian Ferentz performance, but also the nepotistic relationship. And the fact that, that he reports to the athletic director specifically because that was the only way he could be hired legally. Yeah. And so the question here really is like, yeah, it's it, it, sure. There's nothing about his job performance that suggests he should continue to be there. But isn't he doing what Dad wants to an extent? And the, the real question I get at there is, even if you replace him, what really are the prospects that you get something better from the offensive coordinator and the offensive game planning under Kurt Ferentz? Isn't the biggest thing keeping Brian there is that he does what Kirk wants? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I was never going to have like a top 50% offense under Kirk Ferentz. That's not how he plans his games. And, Again. and it's, it's, and so this is kind of why, like, I I don't want to like create the idea that replacing Brian Ferentz is going to fix things. It won't. Um, I think it's just plain indefensible to <laughs> to still have him around at this point after the last almost three seasons, two and a half seasons of basically being the worst uh, offense in the conference and almost the worst offense in the country. Um, they've really gone above and beyond this yeah. year, though. No, they're I, I, like Brian Ferentz is leaving no mm-hmm. doubt. He, it's it's wild. He 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 had a good thing going in New England. He was working with Bill Belichick. He had arguably the greatest tight ends room that the NFL's ever seen. And <laughs> uh, fast forward five years, and uh, his dad has basically made him unemployable. I mean, he's. I I, I yeah, firmly believe he's he's never gonna work. I don't in coaching under anybody under. I, Kirk I, again. I think I think there's a chance where Kirk calls in another favorite of Belichick and gets him another position coach job there. But 
I think that's it. Did you read? Uh, did you read Alex Kirschman's article in Slate? Oh, I believe it was. I did. Yes. Okay, uh, it was very good, and also somehow even more damning for Brian Ferentz than I thought possible. Yeah, it's. I mean, and I mean, and damning for Kirk too. It's. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but like, if he wasn't the coach's son, he's not there. I mean, even even like with Iowa's bad standards of offense. You just you cannot justify having him on the team at this point, and they did. Uh, they did ultimately fire Greg Davis eventually. Well, yeah, Greg, retired, Greg right? Davis technically I mean, retired, and if you, right. it felt like he was pushed. He out, was definitely though. pushed out. Um, from what I've heard, he was had more to do with recruiting than uh, than anything he did on the field. I don't know. I'm not in the program. I don't know what the truth is to that. He was pushed out, but it was not a mid-season firing. It was not a showy firing at the end of the season. It was, oh, Greg Davis retired. And maybe that's all it ends up being, is at the end of the year, like you said, it calls in a favor from Belichick or some other NFL guy he knows, like, just have him carry your shit or something. <laughs> I'll get this kid out of here so that these people will stop yelling at me. I'll get somebody else in here who does the same thing, but he won't be related to me, so they won't yell at me as much about it. And then... And I know a real nice guy down in Houston that might be willing to take that favor <laughs> on for you. I do think I do <laughs> think that's the only the only way he's gone. I don't... Maybe, maybe I'm just, like, pessimistic. I don't think they're firing him or saying, oh, he's retiring. That's just not going to happen. I think either... Well, he's immune from real consequences as long as yeah. Bart is there. They have this thing. Basically, they like they're all braced against each other, so like you can't pluck one. Oh yeah, them out. and and also Kirk Ferentz somehow has a bigger buyout than Matt yeah. Rule did. It's uh <laughs> six six million for every year left on his contract. So forty two. And, and like, and it's yeah. been a while since that extension too. Like, this is not like a new that like like. Many years have elapsed since then. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It, it they didn't even. I don't even think they added to his buyout as much as they just added years to the contract, which then in turn made yeah. the buyout go up. But so I guess since that's really since a Kirkless Iowa seems off the table for the foreseeable future, I guess the only other question left to ask is. Now, Ohio State doesn't really matter, not playing the same sport. But then the next game is at home against Northwestern. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you think you're going to be able to move the ball on them? Because bear in mind, Iowa's best performance came against Rutgers, but that was after Rutgers had just gifted them 14 points, which dramatically shifted the game script. I don't think we'll be able to move the ball on. I, I don't think there's going to be a game like last year that we had against Maryland where out of nowhere, we're able to move the ball without any effort. That's not going to happen. Um, we've somehow taken a step back from last year. I will say it's not going to happen because you don't, <laughs> that's, this is what we, this is what they take away from us with conference expansion. And we don't have a conference round Robin. We don't get to see, the Iowa offense against the Michigan State defense in 2022, probably like an event horizon kind of thing. Like that would be the end of existence as we understand it. But I'd, if we did, so, I don't think we would ever figure out that we should just be passing the ball the whole time. Uh, we, I think we'd keep running That's into a loaded box. But yeah. uh, it is my fear that that they do awaken something against Northwestern, and the end result is. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, completely. <laughs> no, no, Kirk, we Kirk then comes out in a very yeah, smart press vindicated. Like, see, look at that. We got 320 yards yep. against the Northwestern we, Wildcats. We scored, we scored that. 27 completely vindicated. points against the so, oh, Maybe some of you don't remember, but we scored 17 against Northwestern. So, yeah, at the end of the year, he says, well, I'd like you to know that we did not finish last in the country in <laughs> offense. Hawaii and Colorado so State what you both, do had, now? both had fewer yards per game than we did. And, 128. Uh, what are you going to say about that? I'm here forever. You can't get rid of me. And and one thing that I, I kind of, you know, one of my biggest takeaways as, as an Illinois fan kind of also, also it reflects on one what, what Bielema has done to turn around some of the things that have been a problem for a long time, but also kind of reflects that Iowa 
doesn't really have enough of enough to compensate for their offense anymore is that they ran through all of the ways that you'd expect Illinois to blow a game like this. <laughs> they ran through all of them and none of them were enough. <laughs> they they really did hit all the usual Illinois notes. <laughs> they had the quarterback go down. I mean, Isaiah Williams had two turnovers and then left. Um, we had our kicker injured, okay, before the game. There's a big sign. In a game against Iowa, your kicker's <laughs> hurt. And you got a different guy doing kickoffs and and uh, place, you know, place kicking because two different guys, you know, because the same guy used to do that. That guy's hurt now. Like all the signs were there. And ultimately it wasn't it wasn't enough for Illinois to lose, which is both a reflection on Bielma turning around those things, but also that like those were the kind of games that Iowa, even as recently as last year, would somehow hold on to win. But some sort of horizon has been crossed here. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, the whatever, whatever dark magic we've been living off of for the last few years seems to have dried up. <laughs> we're still, we're still getting the turnovers. We're s- still not letting points go up on the scoreboard for either team. But it's, uh, uh, we're not winning that coin toss result anymore it's kind of starting to average back out well on that cheerful note we'll probably let you go and bring this just uplifting conversation to an end like i said man i'm right there with your high fives on counting down the basketball season it's just Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!